Psalm 105, if you'll turn there in your Bible. As you're turning there, we're going to see a slight change occur in the psalmist's writing. Now, the twin psalms that we had seen earlier, Psalm 103 and Psalm 104, each chapter it started with the phrase, uh, praise the Lord, I'm sorry, bless the Lord, O my soul, bless the Lord, O my soul. Uh, psalm 104 ended with, or started with bless the Lord, O my soul, and semi ended with bless the Lord, O my soul, in that it was the second line. Now the phrasing changes from bless the Lord, O my soul, to praise the Lord. Now, there are some people who say, and when I say that, you have to take it with a grain of salt. There are some people that say, if you look at your Bible, Psalm 104, verse 35, the last lines, praise the Lord, and there's some who believe that that in actuality, maybe it should, maybe it shouldn't, but should be the first line in Psalm 105. Because Psalm 105 ends with praise the Lord. Psalm 106, it starts with praise the Lord. And 106 ends with praise the Lord. And so if praise the Lord was the beginning of Psalm 105, you could see how 104 and 103 were twins and 105 and 106 were twins. 104 and 103, well, 103 spoke about God of salvation. We saw last week that Psalm 104, God of creation, and what we're going to be seeing in Psalm 105 and 106, they're joined together speaking of the faithfulness of God, our God who is faithful in every aspect of our lives. And we'll get a little bit of a history, biblical history lesson, and see how God was faithful back then. And you need to consider, if God was faithful back then, then why wouldn't he be faithful today. And again, we can so easily get the feeling that things are spiraling out of control a little bit. You know, we see this election and how vicious that has become. This virus, and I guarantee you next year, the next two years, there's going to be something else because there always is. But God's got it all under control. If God doesn't have anything and everything under control, then all things are not working together for his good. But as they're working together for his good, he's got these things under his control, and he is faithful to do what is good and what is necessary for his people, really for all humanity. And the main purpose that God is always working towards is the salvation of mankind. And so we see this term, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord is translated hallelujah. Hallelujah literally means praise the Lord. Now it's my understanding that hallelujah is a word that is pronounced the same in every language that uses this word in this world. We see in Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 through 10 it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one can number. And you could ask, well, who were these people? It says they are of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to the Lord our God who sits upon the throne. So God enters into all peoples. Now this psalm is a recognition of the faithfulness of God. Praise the Lord, our, our hallelujah, because we serve a God that is faithful, that thinks of us and acts and interacts within our lives. So whether the word hallelujah is a response to creation, if it truly is inclusive in Psalm 104, that's fine. If it's an intro into Psalm 105, well, that's fine, because again, just speaking of the faithfulness of God, but either way, praise the Lord. 
Praise the Lord for his goodness. Praise the Lord for how he thinks of you daily. Praise the Lord and how he moves in your life. Praise the Lord for the things that he has told you in his word and praise the Lord that he has been faithful to those things. It's been said that a man is only good as his word and we know that man isn't all that good at all. But I also know the goodness of God based upon his word and also confirmed by his faithfulness to it. Now again, we say we can use these things at times as Christianese and say, oh, well, you know, God is faithful. Well, he is. But what is God faithful to? It's important to understand God is faithful to his word. And all of God's faithfulness springs forth from God being faithful to his word. That's why we can have a surety in the word of God. That's why the word of God is truly an anchor to our soul, that these things have been delivered to us for times such as we experience now. Paul writing to Timothy, this future pastor, well, he's a current pastor during Paul's time, but he is more than likely going to be the one that Paul passes the torch to when Paul leaves. It's in 2 Timothy, and that's Paul's last epistle. Paul's in a dungeon, and it's believed by most theologians that when he left that dungeon, he went to have his head removed. It was He went to his execution from that dungeon. So what he is writing is the last of the writings that we have and probably the last of any writings that he has ever made. So he thought important to tell young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13, through 15 if we are faithless he remains faithful he cannot deny himself remind them of these things charge them before the lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers human philosophies be diligent to present yourself to god a worker who does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth because it's to that that God is going to be faithful and you're going to see the hand of God as you come to understand and know the word of truth. If we're understanding the words of man, well, those are words that will lead to man's destruction because salvation will never be found through human philosophers. Salvation will be found through our living God. And so when it comes to God's faithfulness to his word, it's that which has made all of the difference as we look back in our lives. It's that which has made all of the difference. Looking back in the previous chapters, again, last week in creation, what did God do? He spoke it all into existence, but it just didn't stop in Genesis chapter one. God has been faithful in maintaining that which he has created all the way through to the day that he's going to destroy it, that he is going to destroy this earth and bring about a new heaven and a new earth. Now again, we can abuse what God has given us, this gift that God has given us of all creation, but man cannot destroy the world because if man can destroy the world, then the Bible is not true. And so God is going to be faithful in maintaining this planet, maintaining our ecology all the way through until the end times. And we also saw in Psalm 103, the salvation of mankind, that should be a direct correlation to your mind and what God has done and how unfaithful you, you, you have been, even after the day that you are saved, the times when you made promises to God, you made decisions, you wanted to walk right with him, but you just have not been faithful, definitely not on the scale that God has been faithful to you, but that's okay. If we are faithless, 
He remains faithful. He continues to work with us. And so as we enter into Psalm 105, we get this picture for a reminder for our purposes on the faithfulness of God. Now there's direct references that are made to Israel. And now we have this dilemma that has been debated throughout the times in the church. Is this, are these promises to Israel and how do they relate to us? Well, when we have something like what we have here in Psalm 105, thinking or being reminded that God's word is his word to his people, we see how he interacts with his people. We see how he interacts with Israel, his chosen people. Well, we are God's chosen people as well. We're not Israel, but we are God's chosen people. And so this is how God relates to his people. So just as he related to Israel through what we see here, he relates to us in how we see here as well. And so the first thing we have is in the first stanza, we have a response. Verses 1 through 6. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds amongst the people. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of all of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. And so this is a response really to what, is God, what God has done. Again, verse 1, O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds amongst his people. And so the idea is God has been faithful through his deeds and there's got to be a response to that. Now, when you come to the point in your Christian life where you understand the faithfulness of God, we're going to look at four ways that we respond here. Again, not all lists are all-inclusive, but four things that pop out of the response of the one who realizes the faithfulness of God. And first off, right away in verse 1, you simply thank him. There should be some sort of appreciation and adoration for God's faithfulness in the good things he's done. Again, verse 1, O give thanks to the Lord. This is when you realize the fine line that you have been walking in your life before Christ has entered in and back then it was one side of total depravity and the other side eternal death but it's God who has met us there what would you be today if God was not faithful if Jesus was not faithful to go to the cross if God was not faithful to raise him from the dead if Jesus didn't go to be seated at his right hand if God was not faithful working in people's lives and saving them and then through them all the way through to the day of your salvation. And just think of how many times you denied God when the gospel was spoken to you and you refused it. But God continued to be faithful. He didn't give up. And then finally it was the day of your salvation and you were going to walk in victory for the rest of your life but you fell down, you stumbled, you fell, and you were unfaithful, but God remained faithful. Thank the Lord for that. And I, I really believe that the expression of thanks that we're going to see in these things is what we see in Revelation chapter 5, and that great heavenly choir that is just singing out to the glory of God. Why? They're singing that new song, that fresh awareness of the grace of God and how it has covered, matter of fact, done away with all of their sins. 
Just think, if your Christian life was based upon your faithfulness, think about it. If your Christian life was, think, was based upon your faith, we'd all be in trouble. So we thank him because although he will not strive with man forever, he does strive with man today. He strives with me. He walks side by side with me. He walks side by side with you. He's there to help me. That's the biggest part of what I pray for people. It's hard sometimes to, to you know, prayer requests, especially when somebody's sick. I was just talking to somebody about this. You know, pray that so-and-so gets better. Well, maybe that's not what God desires. But I just pray that God would reveal that he is by that person's side, that he is by our side, and he is striving with us, and he is walking with us. And what I mean in that, he's interacting in our lives, and he's caring for us. Amos chapter 3, verse 3, can two walk together unless they agree? Well, the answer to that, the implied answer to that is no. They cannot walk in unity. But I walk in unity in the Lord by faith. He walks in unity by the things that he does for me and the care he gives to me. Because of that, I thank him. Secondly, your second response to the realization of God's faithfulness is to call upon his name. Again, in verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Now, what is the name that we call upon? Again, name denotes nature and essence of a person. We've seen this back in Exodus chapter 34. And we just see God, God abounds in goodness. He abounds in grace and he abounds in mercy. He abounds in love and all of these things that I'm able to partake of even today. And so as I call upon the name of the Lord, as I call upon God, I call upon God based upon who he is. Because we do not approach, we do not come before a holy God based upon our own merit. I don't come before a holy God based upon, well, God, I'm, I'm the pastor. That means nothing before God as far as merit. I, I don't come before God based upon, well, I, I go to a Calvary chapel. That within itself means absolutely nothing to God. I don't come before God based upon anything but the grace and mercy of God and really the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. It's only through the death of Jesus Christ that I am able to call upon his name. It's amazing the trust that man will put in unfaithful men. The average response to the average person in times of trouble, call 911. Or even today, we have times of trouble, what are we doing? We're stockpiling toilet paper. Now, what if toilet paper is actually the cause of the coronavirus? You ever think of that? <laughs> we're, we're stockpiling hand sanitizer and we're stockpiling water. Have we forgotten water comes out of the water faucet? Now, I don't drink water out of the water faucet. We have, pure, we have a, a, a filter on it. But still, I would drink the stuff out of the faucet if I didn't have anything else to drink. But still, what's happening? Man, we're panicking. And, and that's what man does during times like this. And this is what he's going to do during the time of tribulation. Because man is realizing... He's realizing the futility of his ability and the futility of his life. And he's grabbing for whatever he's able to get because he thinks it's going to help him somehow, some way. But you can't call upon 911 when you're hanging over the fires of hell. Have an emergency? Call 911? Sure, but maybe they'll show. Maybe they won't. You've heard the stories. Yeah, I called 911 and they never showed up. 
but call upon the one who is always faithful, and he's there. He always hears our prayer. He's aware of the situations and circumstances that we enter into. Matter of fact, he's already there doing a work, and we enter into that which he has already prepared for us. And so I have a God who is well aware of all that goes on in my life. So this is the one who we should be calling upon. Yeah, you call 911 if there's an emergency. You go to the doctor if you're sick. If you see somebody suspicious, definitely call the police. But your dependency is to be on the living God. Thirdly, your third response to the realization of God's faithfulness is to proclaim him to others. Why does he do the things that he does for us? Why is he good to us? Well, there's many reasons. Main one is because he loves us, but also he wants to display us. Remember, ladies, if you were at the retreat, what are you? A masterpiece. Well, I'm glad somebody got something out of the woman's retreat. You're the masterpiece. And again, you don't hide a masterpiece in the cellar. You put it out for everybody to see. Matter of fact, as I pointed out that night, the artist will even put his signature on the masterpiece. God has put his signature upon us through the Holy Spirit, and he displays us prom prominently in the art gallery called the church. Again, verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds amongst his people. So proclaim him to others. Don't tell them what you're able to do for them. Tell them what God is able to do. In order to train you for this, God brings you to your weak point. As I've mentioned many times, I go to Kindred Hospital, it's a hospice, and a lot of times people are, I'll even talk to them just before they died. My wife and I, we got a call one night, we went and the person had already died and we were able to minister to a man's children and you just realize the weakness of man. I, I teach at the convalescent home and some of those people have become dear. One lady's got her Bible, and she's just, when you come walking down the hallway, she kind of turns and sees you, and can just see the excitement in her eyes, and you just want, you know, be, he'll get up and walk. Take up your wheelchair and walk. You know, you just, you just want them to do better, but, but the chances are they're, they're not going to, to get better. He'll, he'll place a person before you who just learned that their prognosis is inoperable or or not good, and you realized how, how weak you really are. Who place you before someone who asks why when you just don't know the reason why? And these situations and circumstances that go on and, and there's not a thing that we're able to do. So many times when I wanted to give more, but God purposely doesn't give more because God is the one who's working the plan out. You know, you hear about these people who are healing, you know, this healing crusade, that's a bunch of garbage. There's no such thing as a healing crusade. God does it as he wills. Matter of fact, as I've said so many times before, I personally do not believe that somebody has a gift to heal. I believe that the gift of healing is the person who gets healed. It's God who will work through prayer. It's God who works through agencies, but it's never the person who actually works the healing. It's always God who works a healing. But God doesn't always want to heal. Because again, sometimes, sometimes the person's not going to get better. Because again, every person sitting here, barring the rapture, an accident, or some kind of crime or whatever, we're all going to get sick and we're all going to die. And, and when you're on your deathbed, somebody's probably going to come and pray for you. And they'll pray, but you're still going to go to be with the Lord. And it doesn't mean that they did not pray a prayer of faith. They're just given, and that's the whole idea, 
we're giving this over to the will of God. We're, we're placing the loved ones in God's hands. And, and sometimes you need to remind, but you, you kind of need to, to step back. And because, yeah, it, it's a hard thing to walk out of a hospital and leave somebody behind who's still suffering, somebody who's still dealing with whatever it might be that they're, they're dealing with. But God's got it. God is in control. And we're there to remind them, but sometimes God will send you into such situations to remind you as well. Because all in all, the big scheme of the whole thing, it's God who is faithful. And as hard as it is, if that person does pass on, a born-again believer, God is going to be faithful to bring them unto themselves, which is obviously much better. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he says to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Fourth response to the realization of God's faithfulness is to worship him. To worship him. Notice the verbs that are listed here in verses 2 through 5. I've got them underlined. First it says to sing to him, sing psalms to him. It's to sing songs of worship to the Lord. And But in so many times we put worship and we just leave it in that context. If you just leave it in the context of singing songs, you're going to miss out on so much. I think singing songs is the greatest way in which we worship. Again, it's that great opportunity for worship that we see in heaven in Revelation chapter 5. But also it says, secondly, and still in verse 2, talk of his wondrous works. Just speak of the good things that God has done. It's one of the good things with my wife. We can sit there and talk of the good things that my, my God has done in the lives of our kids or lives of our grandkids here at the church, whatever it might be. Glory in his name. What does it mean to glory in his name? Do you ever think about that? Glory in, what in the world does that mean? If I tell you to go home and glory in his name, what are you going to do? Do you know what to do? Glory in his name? Reflect the goodness of God and what God has done in your life. Again, to, to display it to others. We're like the moon, if you will. The sun, you know, the moon doesn't give off light. It reflects the light from the sun, from a greater source than itself. We reflect the glory of God. We reflect the glory from a greater source than ourselves. How are you doing that? You do that as you live for the Lord, as you speak of the Lord, as you sing to the Lord, seek the Lord, remember the Lord, all of these things. Glory in his holy name. There is that term once again. Glory in your glory of the Lord is based upon who he is. Let the hearts of those who uh, rejoice who seek the Lord. Verse 4, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Seek to have the attention of God. And we do that through prayer, and we do that through studying God's word and becoming more and more like Christ. And then verse 5, what we're going to be doing here in a little bit, remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. Remember the good things that he has done in your life, but not just that. And again, we're going to be looking at that, the good things that God has done for all of humanity. The Old Testament and that good work that God did for thousands of years leading to the day of our salvation. And so there's a lot there. There's to be a response to the good things that God has done, a response to the faithfulness of God. Now, the second stanza is a remembrance. Verses 7 through 12 He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac 
and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel's an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as an allotment for your inheritance, when they were few in number indeed, very few and strangers in it. This stanza is really where the theme is seen. Again, the faithfulness of God delivered through the promises of God. Notice the word covenant here is mentioned three times, so it should be something important for us to understand. First, know what a covenant is not. A covenant is not a deal that you make with God. You can't deal with God. You have nothing to offer. What do you have that God wants? I mean, your heart, I understand that. But beyond that, what do you have that God wants? You bring nothing to the bargaining table to deal with God. A covenant is a promise, a little bit more than that. It's a solemn commitment. And God has solemnly committed in in so many things as we read through the scriptures. Remembering that these covenants, that God's promises, are unilateral. They're non-negotiable. I know I've already said this, but they're not bilateral. They're unilateral. They're given from God to man. Jacob, when, um, you know, Jacob's ladder in in Genesis, you know, he kind of bargained with God. Well, if you'll be with me, and if you'll bless me wherever I go, and he kind of had these series of ifs, and then he threw in a then, if and then with God's not so good. If you do this, if you do that, then I'll do that. That's not what it's about. It's just do it. It's just be obedient. God's faithful. He gives us the promise. Our response is to be faithful. And so God's promises are unilateral. They're eternal and irrevocable. God is not going... Sometimes you'll hear the word God repented or God changed his mind. It's not so much that he was sorry, you know, that kind of a thing. It's just that God's gone in a different direction. So God's promises are eternal and irrevocable. And thirdly, God's promises, just as importantly, are based upon grace. You don't deserve the promises that God has given you. So the question is never if, and the question is always then. So keep in mind, when God made the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verses 7 through 16, he says, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said, it to, him, so he said to him, bring me three-year-old heifer, three-year-old female donkey. I'm sorry, three more. I don't know where I got donkey from. Three-year-old female goat, three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And so the idea, it was kind of common back then. If you had a promise to make, this is a societal thing, you would take an animal and you'd cut it down the middle. And the two of you would walk between these things. And the idea was, if I don't keep my promises, may I be as these animals are. And so God was meeting Abraham where he was societally in a societal manner. 
Um, the vultures, some people equate that, some commentators equate that to the devil trying to rip off the promises of God. But my point, verse 12, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abraham, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. Well, we know that came to pass. That came to pass Israel in Egypt, because as we go back to Psalm 105, that's the context that we'll see. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge afterward, and they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go down to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. We're not going to go into all the other details about that, but the idea is, if you would look back, see that God made a promise. <laughs> this was a promise that he was not even planning on delivering on for 400 plus years, but he would remained faithful to that promise. In Psalm 119.90, your faithfulness endures to all generations. And then thirdly, mid-stanza here, a reality. This is in verses 12 through 36. Now, these stanzas are intended to show us the absolute kingship of God or his sovereignty. Even as God made the promises, it's God who causes them to come to pass. And again, the idea, as we saw previously for 400 years, he did not forget, and then he was even instrumental. You saw the hand of God in causing these promises to come to pass. As I read through verses 12 through 36, I underlined them, or at least made note of them. See the, the, the note, he, speaking of God and what God has done. Verse, well, actually, verse 13, it says, When they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was, uh, he was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The rule of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his house, the ruler of all his possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came to Egypt, and Jacob dwelled in the land of Ham. He increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs amongst them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his word. He turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. Their land abounded with frogs, even in the chambers of the kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and lice in their territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck their vines also and their fig trees and splintered their trees of their territory. He spoke, and locusts came, young locusts without number, and ate up all the vegetation in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. He also destroyed all the firstborn in their land at the first of uh, the first of their strength. Look how the plagues against Egypt are used to display God's sovereignty and faithfulness 
over mankind. I'm just going to go through this fairly quickly. I'm not going to reread the verses. But in verse 28, God displays how he is sovereign over darkness. Darkness is simply the absence of light. When Jesus came into this world, what did he say? I am the light of the world. It's God who overcomes that. And so darkness, as it came upon the land, is a picture of a godless existence. What hope did Israel, I'm sorry, not Israel, but did Egypt have? Egypt had absolutely no hope. They were in darkness. And the picture here is of the sovereignty of God. God conquered their son God, Ra. And then in verse 29, God is sovereign over the philosophies of man. We've seen many times that water is symbolic of God's word and his truth. Well, I believe here for the Nile River, it was symbolic of the words of man. In God's sight, anyone who was bathed in blood would be made unclean. And so what did he do? He turned all of their rivers or all of man's philosophies into something that is unclean. And we see here that God conquered their river god, Orissus. In verse 30, God is sovereign over spiritual hosts. God conquered the frog goddess Hecate. In verse 31, God is sovereign over the effects of the demons, and we see that God conquered their fly god, Utakit. In verse 31b, God is sovereign over national strengths. It was from the rich soil, the deposited of the Nile Delta, that gnats and lice came up from. God conquered their earth god, Geb. In verses 32 through 33, God is sovereign over nature. God conquered Shu, the atmosphere, and Nut, the sky. And then in verse 34 through 35, we see that God is sovereign over the harvest. God conquered Nephri, the god of grain, and Anubis, god of the fields. And then verse 36, we see that God is sovereign over man and that God has conquered Egypt. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And so this was a battle of God. These plagues were in essence the battle of the gods. That's why Moses asked God, you want me to go and speak to to Pharaoh? Who should I say is sending me? Why would he say that? Because there's a ton of gods in Egypt. Which God is this would be what would Pharaoh would ask. And God could have said, they'll know soon enough, but just tell them I am. Because there were all those gods who, who weren't. And so in these plagues, what you see here is, is a battle of the gods. And obviously our God was going to win because their gods just simply did not exist. I am the first and the last and besides me, there is no God. They put their trust in these false gods, but those false gods, obviously, and the point here is, they could not be faithful. But our God was faithful. Can you imagine if God told you, go to the most powerful nation in the world who has enslaved your people and tell them to, to let them go. And if not, I'm going to bring these plagues upon them. How would you feel going up and telling this ruler of wherever it might be? What if God, you know, we, we just saw recently in the last few years, ISIS. What if God told you to go to the leader of ISIS and tell and telling them to quit killing people and get the territory back? You'd probably be thinking you wouldn't be coming back with your head attached to your shoulders. But here, Moses did that. See how hard that, that must have been. And to proclaim a plague, can you imagine proclaiming a plague? going to whoever and telling them that, you know, the rivers are going to turn to blood. You're kind of laying it all out on the line there. 
But God is faithful. Don't go doing that unless God tells you to do that. <laughs> if God tells you to do it, then you do it. But don't test God because you'll be made the fool. But Moses was faithful. I mean, he wasn't faithful in the manner in which God was faithful, remember? You know, I don't talk very well. He was just chickening out. He didn't want to go before Pharaoh. And finally God said, all right, I'll send your brother Aaron. But notice how you never really see Aaron speaking, not, not to Pharaoh. So I would imagine once he got up there, I would imagine Moses was emboldened, probably pushed Aaron out of the way, and then was faithful finally in what God had called him to do. And then lastly, the last stanza, a reliability, verses 37 to the end of the chapter. He also brought them out with silver and gold, so they came out better than they went in. And there was none feeble amongst his tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. So again, we've seen that before. This is the shadow of God's wings as they're going through in the day and the desert gets pretty hot. God put these clouds over his people. As the clouds move, the people would move underneath the clouds. When the clouds stopped and the glory of God appeared, they would set camp up. At nighttime, the desert, just as it's hot during the day, it's cold at night, but there would be this pillar of fire that would protect his people. God is faithful. Verse 40, the people asked, and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. So he provided for their food every single day. God was faithful. He remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So that's what we referred back to in Genesis chapter 15. He brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles and they inherited the labor of the nations that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. And you're looking at this and you'll think he remembered his holy promise, Abraham his servant. He brought out his people with joy and his chosen ones with gladness. Those people were a pain in the neck. I've read the book. You're a pain in the neck too, but God still finds joy in us. It's not based upon our faithfulness. It's based upon his faithfulness. God is faithful. It's not that God is full of faith. We need to be faithful in that regard. But God is full of faith in that he is faithful to do what he has promised that he was going to do. We have similar great promises that we even see in the Old Testament. Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And what is the response to all of this? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord because he is so good. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word that reminds us of these things. And Lord, that is proven through this history lesson of how faithful you were. But I pray us as born-again believers would not miss the point. Just as, that's not just something that happened in the past, but it's a past lesson for experiences today. Just as you were faithful in the past, God, you'll be faithful today. And so, Father, based upon that, I pray that we would be people who would pursue your will, that we would seek you out and, Father, submit ourselves to you. And as we do, we would realize who the faithful one truly is and as we learn about you, as we reflect you to others. And so, God, I thank you for bringing us here tonight. We lift up our church that you will continue to bless it and use it, Father, in most glorious ways we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. We